Hello and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a new weekly podcast shining a spotlight on Australian fiction. My name is Claudine Tonellis. As a writer and avid reader, I love chatting about books. And in this podcast, I'll chat to authors, publishers and readers, giving you, dear listener, insight into what's hot on the Australian fiction scene. So if you're looking for your next book recommendation or just want to know more about Aussie fiction writers, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and enjoy. Today I'm chatting with a Melbourne-based author whose debut novel won the 2019 Penguin Literary Prize. She describes herself variously as a recovering blogger, impending novelist and compulsive short story writer. In fact, she's an award-winning short story writer and in recognition of that, she was awarded the 2019 Henry Handel Richardson Fellowship at Varuna for excellence in short story writing. If that's not impressive enough, her first manuscript called The Hidden Draw received a commendation in the 2015 Victorian Premier's Unpublished Manuscript Awards and was selected for the 2015 Hachette Queensland Writers' Centre Manuscript Development Program. Wow, 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 I'm in awe. The author is Imbi Nimi and the novel is called The Spill. Morning Imbi, welcome to the podcast. Good morning Claudine, thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Well, 2019 was certainly a very big year for you, wasn't it? It was. Tell me about entering the Penguin Literary Prize. How long had you been working on your manuscript beforehand and what was it like to win? Oh, wow. There's a lot to say about all of those things. I started working on The Spill in, I think it was about August 2017. And it was my third manuscript. And I had this sort of idea that I wanted to explore. I did a structure workshop around September, which really helped shape the idea that I had for its structure. And then I gave it to my beta readers sort of around Christmas, New Year's, at the end of that year. And they hated it. Oh, no. (laughs) No, they didn't hate it. I should be kind, but they were a little bit confused by it. I knew that I was showing it a bit earlier than I normally would have because I was testing this structure and their feedback was invaluable in terms of the changes I then went on to make to make it hopefully work. So then I was working on that sort of for, for a lot of 2018, but at the same time, I had returned to writing short stories, having had a 25-year break. The last short story I'd written was like 1992 when I was sort of finishing up universities. That was my third manuscript, The Spill, and I had been trying to get published and I was, I think I kind of hit rock bottom a little bit in just in terms of my confidence and, and you know, what, what am I doing this for? And there is another story, and I'm just going to park this because um, I don't want to blow this answer out too much. There was another sort of a readjustment of my mindset around that time. So, yes, I had turned back to short stories. So I was, I was writing lots of short stories and I was starting to get shortlisted and, you know, and actually winning some prizes. So by the end of 2018, you know, I entered the Penguin the rare price had zero expectation of getting anywhere and you know I'd always use these unpublished manuscript awards as a way of setting goals for myself because I I work well to deadlines and I didn't think of it again (laughs) and then I decided at the end of 2018 that I was going to spend 2019 it was going to be year of the short story and that's what I was going to do and then I got an email from Meredith Kernow at Penguin which changed everything which said I'd been shortlisted and that put you know, the manuscript that I just pushed aside and said, no, I'm just not going to do this, put it back on the table. Wow. Fantastic. So tell me about that email and how it felt for you once you realised it was more than just being shortlisted, that you'd actually won the prize. The story goes that I 
I got the email saying I'd won on a Sunday. Wow. So anyone who's ever submitted to anything knows that you never get emails of any interest on a Sunday. Mm. Um, you know, it's at 5 p.m. on a Friday where you, you have a kind of sad moment where you know that you're entering the black spot of the weekend where no, no. prizes or announcements or no publisher's going to get back to you until, you know, Monday morning. I was not expecting this email at all. And actually I opened it without really realising who it was from and what it was about. And then I read this first sentence, which was, you know, Dear MB, how do you feel about winning the Penguin Literary Prize? <laughs> I'd expected a telephone call or something. And I, I later asked Meredith, I said, you know, it was weird to get an email on a Sunday. It just took me completely by surprise. And she said, because Catherine Hind, who'd been the previous winner, when she'd rung Catherine to tell her that she'd won, it was so much for Catherine to process that she was really quiet about it. So it wasn't quite the exuberant conversation that Meredith had been expecting. She decided with my year she was going to email. So they're about to announce the 2020 winner. I'll be curious to find out which method she chose to <laughs> deliver, deliver the news. So the book is out in the world from tomorrow, the 2nd of June. So I wanted to ask, how have you been feeling about pre-release feedback? And do you have any jitters about how it will be received? It's been available for pre-order for quite a while. And, you know, I've had lots of lovely emails from friends and colleagues who have been buying it, working well under my instructions. I've been feeling really excited. I've waited a long time. I'm 50 this year. This has always been a life goal of mine. It's super exciting. But interesting that you asked this question because just last night, having gone from feeling really excited and looking forward to tomorrow, I started to feel sick, sick with anxiety. People are not just buying it, but they're going to read it. <laughs> the worry that comes from that, you know, my brain knows um, that it's impossible to write a book that everyone's going to love. But then my heart knows how much I've poured into this work. In fact, all of my works, I feel like I'm walking around like a big, just a big open wound, a big walking open wound. I feel very exposed. I didn't think I would have a problem with that because I waited for this so long. Now that it's here, I'm like, oh, feeling a bit tender. Look, I feel so lucky to have this opportunity to be published, to be published by Penguin, which is a publisher I've known about since I really knew about books. And it's a dream come true. But, you know, like most dreams come true, it's not straightforward. It's not just all light. There's, there's a little bit of shade in there. And I guess that's to be expected. So, Imbi, let's move to the book itself. And it was such a thought-provoking read on so many levels. The primary characters, Nicole and Samantha Cooper, are incredibly well-formed, though flawed and somewhat frustrating, but at the same time so relatable and so real. They offer us a very deep insight into family dynamics, the things that hold us together and those that tear us apart. I think almost everyone has one or two family members they don't understand or those with whom they have a frosty relationship. And I think this book really explores the reasons why this can happen. So for those who haven't read it, perhaps you could tell us a little bit more about the book and then what inspired you to write it. Okay, so the, the elevator pitch has always been no two people ever experience or remember the same thing in the same way especially when they're sisters. I started off really wanting to explore the sister relationship because I have felt that of all the different variations of family dynamics, the sister relationship is the one that's most intriguing to me because I have two sisters. I have lots of friends with sisters and sisters talk about their sisters all the time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and there's like layers of misunderstanding and miscommunication and but also this amazing loyalty and deep, deep love 
between sisters. The entire book is structured like a jigsaw puzzle. So that was the other idea that I came in with was this notion of handing the reader one piece at a time from different parts of the puzzle so that they would slowly build a picture rather than going from, you know, from the past and moving right through to the present. And in that way, exploring that gap between what we experience and what we remember because we all fictionalise our memories to a certain degree to kind of fit into these stories, these narratives that we tell ourselves about our lives. It's always interesting whenever you talk to anyone in your family about something that happened years and years and years ago, there will always be conflicting versions. People remember things so differently and I liked exploring, like through the structure of the book, exploring those gaps in memories and their experiences. What inspired you to write this story? There is an inciting incident back, way back in the dark ages uh, when I was 10, when I was in a car accident. I had been thinking about this car accident a lot and thinking of what a huge impact it had had on my personality in those sort of very formative years. And even though really nobody was particularly hurt, the car was totaled, but my mother, my sister and I, we walked away pretty much unscathed. And yet it had this sort of, yeah, this impact that lasts for decades, I still feel to this day. My mother probably would be horrified to hear me say this (laughs) because she was the one driving. It's not like I blame her and it was an accident. I was interested in taking those moments in a person's life on which the whole life can kind of be spun around. Those things can be really seemingly small or they can be, you know, big like a car accident or the death of someone close to you. Each of the chapters that I chose from the past were just small insights into the formation of who the present day sisters have become, that being the puzzle. So let's clarify what the spill refers to. And it's the car accident that the girls and their mother, Tina, were involved in in 1982 on a remote highway in Western Australia. And as you say, the book is in many ways a reflection on the way their lives were affected by that one incident, much like you, and the different memories they have about it. It's a defining moment in their lives, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. It's a real fork in the road, no pun intended, but yes. And so then just go Going back to the things that you've already alluded to in relation to the structure of your book, it was incredibly intriguing to me to see how you structured this story. It was so unusual and yet so brilliant. I don't think I've ever seen anything like it before. It was very, very ambitious. And there were a couple of times, I have to say, I belong to a writing group. Hello, the prologues. With writing groups, I mean, anyone who's writing long form, we're actually all of us writing long form, but occasionally short stories will, you know, will bring chapters or short stories in, but it's rare that they'll see the whole thing. So I'd bring in these small fragments and I would be like trying to explain to them, okay, so this is where it fits in. This is what I'm going to try and do. And they were just all looking at me like, are you crazy? Like, what, what are you doing? Like, why are you making it so complicated for yourself? And, and I was just adamant. I really wanted to do it this way. And just to go back to that initial feedback from my beta readers, the thing that I had to work really hard at was sewing small threads to join everything together. So I ended up starting this big spreadsheet, which is the secret of my success, that helped me track each chapter so I could look at the book chronologically. So I could look at it from going from A to Z, or I could look at it in the order that I'd put it in the novel and then actually just check that each chapter was working hard enough, that each chapter was either introducing, furthering or resolving a small mystery, whether it was a big mystery like was Tina, the mother, drunk at the time of the car accident, Mm. or 
a small thing like why didn't Samantha invite Nicole to be a bridesmaid at her wedding? So it's just, so either had to introduce, touch on or resolve one of those things. The other thing that's worth noting about that whole structure, that structure workshop that I talked about, the one that I did was really key because how am I going to keep the, the reader's interest if, you know, we're jumping all over the place? I always describe the plot as being a bit like the Mad Mouse ride at the royal show kind of being flung back and forth and up and down I realized that what I needed to do was the present day narrative needed to be pretty much structured around the hero's journey that kind of opened up this freedom to kind of jump back and forward in time so I did map out that present day narrative against the traditional hero's journey or the three-act structure and I did that once and I never looked back so I don't know how far I drifted away from that but that was my starting point and it seemed to work because most people seem to have made their way to the end of the book without throwing it to the side in disgust. It felt seamless as a reader, which is a testament to how well you pulled it off. Oh, thank you for saying that. You get so close to your own work, you really don't have that distance to be able to see whether or not it's working. I was very relieved when I got the structural edit that they didn't want to change the structure. Yeah. So that was fantastic. that was a really yeah, that was a big yeah. relief to me because I was thinking I don't know if I could go back to that spreadsheet again. <laughs> um, so, yes, I was very, very glad. There was only one chapter where Meredith, my publisher, had said, I'm not sure if that's in the right place. And I looked at the structure and it was one of the ones that I could not move because it was in the present day chapters. It's always worth turning over the thing that they've said in your mind to say, well, what's eliciting that response? What is not working for them? So in the case of that with Meredith, um, saying that about that chapter that couldn't be moved, I realised that that chapter was just not working hard enough. I needed to start it further into the action. I needed to up the ante, the conflict between the two sisters. So I, I did that instead. It earned its place in the story. For those who are listening and trying to figure out what we're talking about, Effectively, the way that you've divided this book up is into an overarching time frame that works backwards. You've got after the spill, so after the accident, you've got the spill, which happens probably right in the centre of the book. It is, it's right in the middle. And then before the spill, which happens at the end of the book. And each of those chapters are told from a different point of view. But interestingly, the spill, which happens in the middle, is actually told from all three points of view. Then in between that, we have different chapters that work, as you say, as pieces of the puzzle, fragments of memories each of the girls contribute that helps us piece together a picture of their relationship, not only with each other, but with their mother, Dina, and their father and his subsequent wives. And then we have these fragments interspersed with chapters from both Nicole and Samantha in first-person point of view that operate in the present time frame. So complex and yet, as a reader, seamless. One of the things that came out of that first draft was that I originally had the entire book written in the third person. Mm -hmm. and that made it very hard for the reader to orientate themselves they didn't know where they were and that was an idea that I had to convert those third person present day chapters into first person to make that sort of a bit clearer yeah. and I think that really helped and the other thing too was I had structured the whole thing like a jigsaw but there was no mention of jigsaws in the actual book and one of my trusted beta readers Carly Napier who's a wonderful writer in her own right she said well why isn't that a motif and I was like oh of course why wouldn't the jigsaw be an important yeah. sort of motif Tina liked jigsaws and it's something that the girls do together after her wake 
So I mentioned the fact that each of the characters in this book are flawed. They all have traits that might make them seem unlikable or hard to understand. So I wanted to ask you, how difficult is it for you to write these kinds of characters? I just love human beings. I love their complexity. I love thinking about a problem or a situation from all different angles, which is why I tend to write multi-perspective work because I'm just so interested in how differently people experience things Mm. and all the scope for humans to misunderstand each other. So it isn't difficult because, I mean, I feel like in myself there's lots of things about me that are really unlikable and I like to think there are lots of likable things about me. And whenever I meet someone that I don't like, I always try and think of what's made them like that. One of the things I'm always preaching to my children is empathy and, you know, even with the, the most awful kids they have to deal with at school it's like what do you think's going on for them and what's their home life like and what are they feeling when they're doing this so that's something that I, I very much enjoy in the development of any character is just considering all of those things that make them the way they are as delightful or as frustrating as those things might be so despite Tina's obvious issues she was probably my favorite character in oh, the- she's the best She had a great deal of self-awareness that compelled her to do the things that she did. She might have been a drunk, but she had principles and she lived by her rules. It's something that I admired her for. Though very little of the book is written from her point of view, how did you get inside her head? It was interesting because for a while there, I did toy with the idea of writing about Tina's childhood or Tina's life. But the jigsaw idea, I mean, it's not a spoiler to say that, because I think it's in one of the opening chapters where there's some discussion about jigsaws, about life as a jigsaw, and there's often pieces missing. We don't always get the whole picture. So I quite liked this idea of us never really, we get some glimpses into what Tina's about, like what's going on for her from her side. I liked her being kind of a bit like the missing piece of the puzzle. Let's talk about alcoholism or addiction for a moment. It's a theme that pervades this book, an alcoholic mother and two sisters. One is affected more deeply than the other. Do you think that genetics plays a role in whether someone is prone to addiction? To be honest, the way I approached alcoholism as a theme in the novel was character driven. So it's not like I set out to write a book about alcoholism and the way our society deals with it or doesn't deal with it. So in terms of my research was very much based on the characters. So I don't really have any strong opinions about the sort of the hereditary nature. I have seen in my own family and my friends' families some kind of passing on of that baton. I don't feel like I'm qualified to talk about the actual science behind it. It was very early on for me that it was clear that Tina did have a problem with alcohol. I just researched to see what, well, if, if, if she's drinking this hard, what's going to happen to her body? And then how's that going to express itself in terms of how she looks or how she acts? That's the way I approached it. One of the things I really enjoyed was the 80s nostalgia that you peppered <laughs> throughout the narrative. <laughs> it reminded me of my own childhood. No seatbelts in the back seat, the Buffalo Bill ice creams. Oh, yeah. The mellow yellow and the West Coast coolers, Young Talentime and even the Datsun 180B. Threw up so many memories and really grounded me in the girl's childhood. I really enjoyed writing about that era and that's the reason why the whole book ended up being set in Perth is because I moved around a lot when I was a kid um, but my year 10, 11 and 12 and my university years were spent in Perth so it was just a delight to go back to that time and I've put in lots of little little in jokes for my school friends (laughs) (laughs) including a very famous 96 FM sweatshirt that my maths buddy John Lamb wore. He wore it almost every day 
So thinking on the themes of this book, what would you say you would like readers to take away most? I feel like, you know, just to go back to the alcoholism, you know, one of the reasons um, Tina's written the way she is, is I, I didn't want to be judgy. I didn't want to write this didactic alcohol is bad book at the same time. You know, I didn't want to condone Tina's choices because ultimately she does pay the price. The thing that I really hope people take away and through the exploration of the two sisters, one of whom is much more brittle than the other, and you actually come to realise a bit of why she's ended up being the way she is, is just that thing that I say to my kids is, you know, kindness and empathy and just walking around in someone else's shoes for a bit. So I'm just hoping that the next time they, you know, get cross at so-and-so in their family for, you know, acting like a whatever at the Christmas get together is actually to stop and and not to judge and empathy and understanding that difficult people have often had difficult lives. thing that I hinted at before was my other little detour that I had in this writing business. And I hope it's okay for me to share this with you because I feel like it's really important for anyone else who's writing at the moment and thinking, will I ever get published or, or not? I made a pact with my really good writerly friend, Emily Collier, that if we both got published or I can't remember she had a different goal within a year that we would get matching tattoos. So we made this pact. We shook hands. Um, we we're both working for the same small arts organisation. Three weeks later, she got diagnosed with breast cancer and her focus just completely shifted. Suddenly getting published was not important at all. It was that she was going through treatment and, you know, I supported her through that time and she stopped writing altogether. It was very hard to see her turn away from writing and say, I don't even think I, you know, after all this, I'll come back to it because I don't know if I, I'm a writer anymore. As she progressed with her treatment, she started to write about it slowly and then write some more and then she wrote other things and she came fully back to being a writer and, you know, she's in remission now, thank God. Being with her through that process, it was really important because I'd been treating getting published like this goal and I was just, go, just got to get published. I'm so close. I can taste it. I've got to keep going, got to keep going. And it was this understanding that the real goal was not getting published. It was the love of writing. It was the doing of the thing. And so two years after we made that pact and we had that sort of wild detour and with her breast cancer, we went and got the tattoos anyway. Neither of us had achieved the goal we set out, but it was a recognition that, you know, we really stood by the, the writing that we had done, the writing that we were doing, the writing that we would always do. So now we've got these matching ampersand tattoos on our inner wrist and I look at it every day and I just think that's why you do it. You don't do it to get published. You do it because you love, you just love putting words on the page one after the other. Of course, we all want that recognition. We want to find our readers and everything and that's wonderful too. But you just, you've got to make sure that you don't lose sight of the love of writing. That's a beautiful story. And thank you so much for sharing that, Imbi. I think that's very inspirational for lots of people for lots of reasons. So before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about work and family. And you have a very busy household and you also work. So I wanted to know how you balance everything, how you have time for your writing, for your family and all the other obligations that go with it. Well, my house is a complete mess. <laughs> when you choose to write, there's always something that has to be relinquished in it's all sacrificed to the gods. And I was talking to you a little bit before we recorded about the fact that I'd been a blogger for a number of years and was when my kids were really little, but I was really determined to take some time back for myself. So I was getting up at five every morning to write a post and then I was still sort of like editing it and 
um, you know, publishing it while they were awake and having breakfast and getting ready for, or I was getting them ready for uh, kindergarten and school. So I developed this incredibly strong muscle to write in very short, sharp bursts. And it's just served me very well because I've continued to do that. And so people are like, oh, so what's your writing routine? Do you know do you, how many days a week? I'm like, it's so fragmented. My opportunities to write are, are just here and there. But whenever I get in, an opportunity, I will make the most of it. So I go in, I go hard. And look, that doesn't suit everybody. Just as there are so many different types of books, there are so many different types of writers. But that certainly has worked for me. I always talk about it's important to keep in contact with your story. So even if you're not writing a huge amount every day, as long as you have that daily contact, then you can keep turning it over in your head. When I first start writing first draft, I start off with a really small goal, 250 words a day. That's it. 250 words a day. I hit that target. Then I give myself permission to shut my computer and not hate everybody and everything that gets in the way <laughs> of me and the manuscript. If I don't have that sense of achievement, then I'm really horrible to live with. I'm just like, why are you making me cook your meal? I should be writing. As I get more and more into the story, I might increase that to 500 words a day. But the main thing is just to have that contact so that when I'm doing the dishes or when I'm stuck at the traffic lights or when I'm in a meeting that's incredibly boring and I hope none of my workmates hear <laughs> you say that, I can return. I've got that. It's, it's fresh in my mind and I can just till it like soil, gently turning it over with my mind. You've offered us some great little nuggets of advice there, particularly for those of us who are writing. But I also wanted to say that I happened to be checking your website out and saw a blog post about crocheting. It was specifically a post about crocheting a crisp wreath. So you had a picture of the foam base, i.e. the blank page, if you like, and then the wool or the ideas, the messy worked piece being the first draft, etc. Now, I love to crochet, but what was wonderful about this post was the way that you used it as a metaphor for the writing process. So given that there are so many writers who listen to this podcast, I wondered if you had any other tips or pearls of wisdom to offer. I love a metaphor and I particularly love a wool-based metaphor because <laughs> I... Um, <laughs> Because I do, I, I crochet a lot and it's mainly because, you know, we watch TV shows with the kids and I, I just like to feel creative and productive even yeah. when I'm tuned out, turned off from the day. I always feel like my manuscript is like one of the zombies in that sort of rather terrible film, World War Z, mm. where the zombies are climbing the Jerusalem wall and my zombie managed to get to the very top and I think like there's a lot to be said for talent and there's a lot to be said for you know good story and you've, you've always got to get your manuscript as good as you can possibly get it before you submit it to publishers or agents or or competitions but there's also this acknowledgement that there's a certain amount of fate in there my zombie wasn't necessarily the best and the brightest and the strongest but it was persistent and it's it just managed to step on the right zombies heads in order to get to the top of the wall so I think I think that's really important because there, there is so much that's beyond your control so rejection hurts but it may just not have been the time for your manuscript it just didn't arrive on the right desk at the right time and that's not to say that won't happen next time so you've got to stand by your work you've got to submit 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 I have a huge submission spreadsheet where I managed all of my submissions and I treated every rejection was 
was just a, I just go, okay, well, what next? Where do I send it next? And I wrote a blog piece on that same blog and it ended up being in the Writers Victoria's um, magazine. I treated my work like they were little boats and every time they came back to shore, I just gently pushed them back out again. Sometimes they come back to you and you feel happy. You're like, oh, you, oh. And then sometimes you're like, oh, no, not again. Like, seriously, <laughs> can you not find an island somewhere and just live there happily? It's really important to allow yourself to have those moments of disappointment and to throw your pity party and but to then pick yourself up and just keep going so just keep going are you working on anything else at the moment I had this grand plan at the beginning of lockdown to go back to my second manuscript which probably is my favorite child and kind of use some of my freshly honed writing skills that I got through working with Genevieve Buzo my wonderful editor at Penguin and get that into shape I did a bit of work but you know that first month of lockdown was so difficult it was really hard to focus and anyone who's told me about Shakespeare writing King Lear while he was in lockdown was in danger of being punched in the head so <laughs> not that I not that I'm advocating violence here but you know it was it's like please don't tell me that I don't want to hear that I've got a marked up manuscript so I know what I want to do and what changes I want to make but I've also got this idea for a fourth one that I just I just so desperately want the time and space to work on. But one of the things you don't realise when you're an unpublished writer is that getting published is very time-consuming and there's a lot that is asked of you and all of my writing time is sort of being taken up with doing these little publicity tasks and, you know, developing an author talk. I've had to get back in contact with my PowerPoint skills and animate some bullet points. I'm really excited about riding this wave that's going to be happening over the next sort of months, but then I'm also looking forward to a quieter time when I can this character who's just desperate to be written can start writing her. Imbi, if listeners wanted to learn more about you and your books, where can they find you? I've got a website, which is imbinimi.com, but I'm also on Facebook and I'm on Instagram and I'm reasonably active on Twitter. I draw the line at TikTok. Is it TikTok? <laughs> and, I, I, and I'm not on Tinder or Grindr and <laughs> they'll find many ways to connect with me and I hope they do, especially if they love the book. If they don't love the book, they can still connect with me but be gentle. Gimby, congratulations once again on a magnificent year and on the publication of this beautiful debut novel, The Spill. It's a thought-provoking, intelligent read which I thoroughly enjoyed. I wish you every success with it in coming months. Thank you for joining me on Talking Aussie Books. Thanks, Claudine. Well, that's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or drop me a line via my Instagram at Claudine Tinellis or on my webpage, claudinetinellis.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading.